COVID changed everybody, but it allowed us time to slow down and sit at home and like be still enough to really think about we had a conversation about like work that's meaningful. Organizations are really gonna need to do things differently is understand that part of the adaptation, part of this growth, this change that needs to happen is, like you said, a redefinition, a renegotiation of how work gets done. So a lot of people wanna find purpose, find flow in what they do. And then also there's this other like aspect of being just appreciated and feeling like the work that you do is not only impacting others, but you're valued for it. Welcome to the Culture Road podcast, episode number four. We are talking today about the great resignation. And I'm really excited to be having this conversation because as much as everyone is talking about the great resignation and as much as it's impacting our world, our hope today is to be able to talk about it with some opportunity for thinking optimistically about how to use this great resignation as a moment to really think about how equity, diversity, and inclusion practices and approaches show up in our organizations. And so with me today are two colleagues and guests, Jayla and Holly, who will introduce themselves in just a moment and who will help us really explore what the issues are and how they show up in our world. So just to, just to think about the great resignation. The great resignation, as I'm sure everybody knows, is this mass exodus from the traditional workforce that's been taking place, especially over the last couple of years. It started off primarily in the United States and then it started moving into other places like UK. And now it's starting to be more and more prominent in other parts of the world, Singapore, China, Australia, et cetera. What's happening is that the entire world is, as we're going through this kind of grand reckoning related to equity and creating more equitable systems, is realizing that some of the capitalistic structures and systems and behaviors, whether or not we're talking about purely capitalism as part of the professional identity of each person, is getting in the way of people really being able to have meaningful work and explore and live the kind of lives that allow them to have the meaning that they want on a day-to-day -day basis. It also is a call to action for so many employers and organizations that have been saying that they're committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion but it failed or come significantly short of doing what it takes in order to create organizations and career paths that allow people to feel satisfied and fulfilled over time. And so what I wanna do is give us an opportunity to unpack what this means for us and to be able to have this conversation with two of my favorite people. Jayla, thank you so much for being here. And maybe we'll start off with you telling a little bit about who you are and maybe a little bit about some of the work that you do related to equity, diversity, and inclusion. And then Holly, we'd like to have you do the same. Hi, I'm Jayla Hodge. Um, so I right now work for Deanna Jones and Associates and I work as a consultant, but also a media specialist. And I specialize in creating like organic content, designing and the ways that we move online in the digital world. And then my background comes from journalism, political science, community engagement, um, and so it's always had a focus on um, EDI and then making everything equitable and infusing those practices and all the work that I've done. Thank you. Thanks, Jayla. Yeah. And Holly. Hi. 
I'm Holly Brittingham. I am the founder and president of Septaria Consulting. I do um, a lot of work in EDI. I also am very interested in the intersection of leadership and organizational development, which I think is really important to think about as we're at this stage of where organizations are going and what they can do to manage where we're at going forward. Yeah, nice. It's going to be really important. And, and, and in addition to your current role, you also have many years of experience as a C-suite leader in corporate settings where you've often been responsible and had a lot of responsibility for creating um, hiring strategies and retention strategies and advancement strategies and been held accountable in many ways for making sure that people are um, represented and that they're moving through the organization. And so the onset of the great resignation must have been a really tumultuous time for you, especially not knowing how to help people kind of stay put and also not knowing exactly what tools were going to be necessary to, to, to meet some of your own goals. Maybe you can start off with helping us understand a little bit about what some of the experiences are that you've witnessed with this. Sure. I think, you know, I've been part of HR departments for a number of years and HR has borne the brunt and the burden of all of the organizational change that has happened right from the beginning of COVID. Um, I think that it's it's unbelievable how much talent leaders have had to contend with and, and what they've had to kind of continually manage. So with every changing strain of the virus, every changing sort of iteration of guidance for how to, what do we do about work from home? What do we do about hybrid? What does hybrid even mean? Layer on top of that, people leaving. How do we hire? How do we hire quickly? All of those expectations. It's unbelievable, actually, what people have been through. What about you, as far as your work? Like what is, like you, in addition to being part of HR departments, you've also have very specific responsibility for equity, diversity, and inclusion. Have you seen that the great resignation has disproportionately impacted certain identities? And if so, what 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 are some of those observations? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that I find myself as part of the great resignation, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but what I've really noticed is that people from from underrepresented groups are more comfortable with flexible work environments. And there tends to be from the dominant culture, a push to come back and be in the office because that's a comfort level to the prevailing culture. And so I think where organizations are really gonna need to do things differently is understand that part of the adaptation, part of this growth, this change that needs to happen is like you said, a redefinition, a renegotiation of how work gets done. Interesting, interesting. Uh, Jayla, I know you have strong opinions about this. And so I would really love, and I, I, I know that you are generationally different than Holly and me, so might have a different take on it also from a generational point of view as a person who's like at an earlier stage in your career, thinking about what, what does this mean for you and what are some of the things that you think about as far as your own career trajectory, as far as how you want to be employed and the nature of the nature of the kind of employment relationships that are palatable to you? Yeah, I can. I can speak from this just like on my experience and also like what I've picked up from my peers. But we, so I'm Gen Z, I'm an elder Gen Z, I'm the first year and we entered the workforce as COVID hit, like our, a lot of us were getting into our first like career oriented jobs at that time. 
So I think that's a big, like a big factor where we got established when we're working from home and not necessarily in these traditional workplace structures. So that's one push why I think there's a big reluctance from like more people in my, in my age group to like go back. And then another reason too, I think is COVID changed everybody, but it allowed us time to slow down and sit at home and like be still enough to really think about, we had a conversation about like work that's meaningful. And I think a lot of people decided that like the jobs that they were doing are the careers or pursuits or paths or leading weren't actually like giving a lot of meaning to them. Um, and I think that's like a big thing that's changed. A lot of people want to find purpose, find flow in what they do. And then also there's this other like aspect of being just appreciated and feeling like the work that you do is not only impacting others, but you're valued for it. Right. And I think people are like, people, me, a lot of feeling a sense of, I want to be in a workplace that if I'm not just another number, I'm not just this role. Like I have a good holistic, like work-life balance and I'm appreciated for my character and not just how much, like how productive I've been. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting to think about that because I wonder like, and I don't know this, but are people more productive when they're working from home? Do we have a sense of that? And I'm not, I'm not pushing one way or another, but I'm wondering because culturally speaking, at least in the United States, we care a lot about productivity, right? And we try to measure it. And it's been really complicated to figure out like, how is it that we help ourselves understand what drives productivity? And is it being at home and having more flexibility or is it being in a workplace environment where you're actually able to have some of the creative and synergistic exchange and making sure that people have access to tools and resources and support that you might not have if you're at home and your computer crashes or if you need to get something signed or a decision made quickly. So I wonder about the question of productivity as we kind of navigate through this this different landscape. I think that's at least from what I'm, I'm perceiving, I think you guys might have a different perspective, is that the more holistic approach to work, like we have more language too. Like we talk about emotional well-being and mental health. Like that's language that I feel like it's more incorporated now post-COVID than it was like previous too. So people are having emphasis on different aspects of their life that's not like productivity. And then others, I saw on my flight here actually, I sat next to a man and he's saying that he's on his way to Columbia. And he's like, being able to like get up and take a break and go travel and go find creativity and find other outlets to do things has made his life, his work life better. So he's like, when I go back to work, I don't feel drained. I don't feel like stressed. I feel relaxed, I get inspiration. So there's a give and take, but I think that's something a lot of people are finding value in that they weren't finding in like traditional offices or sitting at their desk. Like if I get stuck on an idea, I can, I can literally change locations. I can go work outside. I can go another place. And sometimes that's just like, that's all people are looking for. Interesting. Yeah, that's completely true. I think it, it absolutely reflects the experience of, you know, what companies are trying to figure out. So right. I, at the company I was last at, we did a survey asking people where when what types of work do you feel that you're better in the office and what types of work do you feel like you'd be better at home and what was very interesting is there was from leadership real focus on but we need culture we need people to be together we need this feeling of who we are as a company and i think you know 
what's interesting is people who started during COVID and who never actually met people physically still felt like they had a sense of culture because culture isn't necessarily just being in person. On the other hand, there are types of work where people, like it's brainstorming, right? right. So in a marketing services company, the idea was if we're gonna be brainstorming and, and putting ideas on the wall, being together does make a difference. Yeah. And it is it results in quality work. On the other hand, there are times when if I'm just gonna answer emails, if I need to really be thinking and yeah. focusing, it's better for me to be at home. Yeah. And I think the big challenge is how do you structure it so that it works for everybody in all of this flexibility, right? And one of the things I noticed is you've probably seen that new little tagline that's coming on people's emails. You know, this email is sent at a time convenient for me. Don't presume that it's convenient for you. Yeah. You know, so there's right. there's a little bit more to that. Um, and it's interesting to see how it's going to evolve. Yeah. And this is, I'm speaking as someone, the first community I found and ever felt a part of was online. Like, that's a big difference. Yeah. So it's easy for like to virtually find that when that's what you're used to. That's what we grew up in. That's what we've already been adapted to. And I think that could be a disconnect to people who are used to finding um, online digital yeah. communities versus the in-person experience. Okay, so I, this may be generational, I don't know, but it's interesting to me to, to imagine that there's no connection at all between people saying, I just, I just am not feeling the support. I'm not feeling heard. I don't feel like I have ways for my voice or my contributions to be fully acknowledged or to kind of them, make their way through decision-making channels when, and, and also being in a totally virtual space. Um, because a lot of times it feels like in totally virtual spaces, we're just kind of here for this meeting. The actual stuff in between doesn't really happen, right? It's like, okay, here's the meeting from this time to this time. If anything, we're making the meeting shorter or more efficient and more topically focused. But all the stuff that is the in-between stuff that allows people to get to know each other and establish a sense of care at human levels is harder, it seems like. And I don't mean people need to leave the workforce for that or if it's a hybrid versus in-person issue, but it does seem like all of these things are kind of conflated. And I wonder if the meaning that people are seeking from their work, some of it has to do with not being able to actually establish some of the in-person relationships that might actually be cultivated more in an in-person environment. I don't know. Interesting. That is a good point. I think that I thought your point, the, sorry, you said earlier that you found more marginalized identities are more reluctant to return to the workplace. Yeah. And I still remember, like, I had one year, one and a half year when I was in a traditional office setting um, and I remember feeling kind of awkward and tense there and I know what the feeling people are talking about like the you know gathering around coffee and be able to speak and like build those relationships and I understand like why that's a big draw but also me being again like one of the only um, black women in that organization I couldn't connect 100% with everyone that way at least not as easily and that's another thing that like virtually it's easier to maintain those like work boundaries and so you don't also feel like i'm being left out of this culture yeah right when it's like okay i all focus on like the work and what we do and like building a relationship through that that's interesting yeah, yeah it can cut both ways right, right. i mean mm -hmm. if if the, if the in-office culture is such that it actually leans towards exclusion you know if the if the yeah. water cooler <laughs> conversations feel exclusive then you could see how yeah. The, you know, the virtual would be 
preferable. And the dialogue around that really, that started around um, George Floyd and all that, that caught our culture really focusing. And on this happened when we, are, we weren't really returning to office settings. So while I think that a lot of organizations are like making the moves and steps and impacts like change their inclusion in that culture, um, people that didn't get to experience that before they left might not believe it or might not be eager to return. Yeah. 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 So uh, there's one other question that comes to my mind, probably of other, many others, around the Great Resignation, and it's about like job security. I don't know, you know, different generations have very different ways of thinking about like job security and career pathing and all of that thing. But there's, with the great resignation, there are a lot of people who are earlier in their career who are saying, mm, that's okay, I don't want to play that game. It doesn't matter if I have an interruption in my career uh, trajectory or in what has typically been, traditionally been, um, a path. And I wonder what are some of the, you know, different ways of thinking about that? Because it seems like, you know, as people are leaving traditional workplaces, there's also the rise of more and more entrepreneurial endeavors. Like people are just finding other really cool, creative ways to be employed and engaged. And it, they're probably just as marketable as ever, right? And so it's really interesting to think about that. Yeah, I mean, I think the you know, phrases like the gig economy and people having side hustles, that's a trend that I think started before the Great Resignation. Yeah. Another trend I think is that employees are looking for what they can learn. So it's it's become, I would say over the past five to 10 years, even more important for companies and organizations to understand what can I, what learning are you going to get yeah. when you come here, as opposed to what are you gonna do for me? Right, right. And it's, you know, of course, both things can exist simultaneously, but that requires more thoughtfulness, you know, to make sure that the work is getting done and we're learning, yeah. right? And so having that learning mindset is important. Yeah. Also pre-COVID, again, it's like pre-COVID world. It's a lot of things are different. Um, when you're new and starting out, they tell you, you don't want a gap on your resume, right? You don't want that. It's not going to look good. And then the world stopped. Um, a lot of people were getting let go. We weren't able to work. Now people have large gaps and realizing, well, why does that? That didn't matter. Right, that doesn't right. say anything about like my work ethic or my value. It says more about circumstance. And then I think that's a big change. Other things like a lot of companies were in a hard spot where they unfortunately had to let people go. But we, from the outside of that, you see um, a lot of entry level positions all of a sudden, regardless of how, how well they worked, having to either you know get let go or be laid off. And so I think there's a lack of faith especially when you're first starting off, you're like, I, I may not have job security anyway. Mm. Like if the going gets tough, I still might be having to find out another hustle. I'd rather just invest now. Right, right, right. So what are the kinds of things people are transitioning to? Like for, for people who are specifically leaving in order to find more meaning in their life and in their career, are there specific things that people are kind of preferring to go towards professionally? I think it's a big question and it really just depends on the individual, but I've noticed a big trend in like content creators yeah. and investing in cryptocurrencies. And every time I go on my, on TikTok or my IG, it's like tips of how to start your own business or tips of how to um, like grow, I don't know, grow your engagement strategy and how to monetize this and how to do that. And a lot of people are like really pouring into their own creative endeavors and yeah. their content endeavors. Yeah. I agree. And I think things have flipped. I mean, I think that, what's the phrase? We're not living to work anymore, we're working to live. 
right? And yeah, <laughs> snaps. <laughs> I got snaps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, and it's interesting because I, I think COVID accelerated a whole yeah, lot of yeah. things. I mean, if you think about, you know, 30 years ago, a gap, I mean, if you didn't have, you know, over five years somewhere, that was viewed as, oh, they jump around too much. You know, you shouldn't hire that person. Right. So it's completely just, it's morphing and shifting. And I think we're going from a very hierarchical way of doing things in which climbing the ladder, paying your dues, right? Staying in a place for a long time was valued in a way that now as we're shifting to more team-based structures, then it's more about, okay, what do I bring? What can I learn? What what do I bring here? Regardless of how long I've been in one place. And right. maybe better if I haven't been. And skills-wise, too, it's looking a lot different. We're yes. looking for a lot of people that can do a lot, multiple things. Like jacks of all trades um, are becoming more and more valued. So that's, I know that they used to tell you, like, pick a pick a specification yeah. and stick with that. And now my last two years of college are like, don't like go try a little bit, yeah. learn a little bit of this or that yeah. so that you can be the person that, that guarantees you work. Yeah. And now we have a whole bunch of skills that I'm like, okay, well I could do a little bit of this and I could do a little bit of that. No, I loved trying this. And they're saying that Gen Z, we don't stay more often than not in a role for more than a year and a half before we get bored and switch. Right. A year and a half. A year and a half. Yeah, and that brings it back to the impact and the churn on organizations. And if you start to think about the traditional model of hiring and recruiting, if that retention door isn't, I mean, it's just this churn. Right. And so how can that, like something's got to give at some point. And and we're in the midst of this really profound change. And I think that the people, you know, I just have great, (laughs) empathy for anybody in doing talent, doing talent acquisition right now, you know, trying to figure out how do we keep work getting done, have the right people, build the culture. I mean, it's, it's a tall order. And if you don't love your company and you don't love your job and you don't find meaning in that work, you are, you're going to leave. And if you have like these, a whole new toolbox of digital skills that are transferable and are very much wanted, you have options. Yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah. what we're seeing. People are like, oh, you want to make me work overtime or I don't like raise or there's not a lot of opportunity here. Okay, well, bye. And yeah. it's, that, it's that simple, I think. It's interesting. Yeah, the, the, you know, people have been trying to, which is great, the last couple of years has been all about disrupting systems and redistribution of power. And it's, it's really happening where, you know, employees have so much power or potential employees um, but it also means that organizations and their systems have to really be not just kind of interrogated and all of that, but actually really redesigned. Like think how expensive it is to hire, right? And so we hire people and we invest tremendous amounts of actual dollars in the hiring process and the onboarding process. And then the person leaves after a year and a half. That's a really unsustainable model, exactly. right? And so it's going to take some really heavy lifting as far as understanding like, how to reconstitute these organizations, and while we're doing it, how to just go ahead and take advantage of the fact that it's disrupted anyway, and how do we build more equity, diversity, and inclusion into the fabric of what we're doing? Yeah, that's exactly right. I recently organized something that we called Interrogate the Culture, and it was designed to look at where is there bias in the current systems, and what do we do about it? 
doing it in that and we had a just a diverse group of people and employees from all different levels and perspectives come together and really talk through with the first um process that we interrogated was career development mm. and that got into salary and pay and it's fascinating because it just immediately surfaces things like core issues like yeah. pay transparency is who should know who's who's you know should i know how much you're making versus how much i'm making right, right. How, it does that work what does that mean what goes on behind the curtain of hr you know i think there's a sense that it's this big mysterious black box and if hr is not doing its job well then which is really hard then it's very easy to for suspicion to come yeah. and i'm like i don't i don't trust what they're saying to me and whatnot on the other hand, you have employee privacy, right? which is vitally important. And so I think these, these are the big fundamental issues that are kind of in the crux of this shift that we're in. Okay, I have to ask, is tra pay transparency good or not good? Like I have, it, it's so complicated. It's really hard for me to imagine like a ridiculously clear answer to yeah. this. But if you have one, we'll take it. I don't, I don't have an answer, but I have a story. Mm. Um, I know of a consulting firm that decided because of their mission um, that they they were advocates of pay transparency and everybody knew what everybody made at all levels. And that was, they just felt like that was the equitable way to go. And how did it work I, To be honest, I should check back in. <laughs> but I, I have a feeling that it is still that way. I noticed their titles um, indicate like you can tell when somebody's gotten a raise because they get a promotion and generally they all know what people are making i think it's incredibly thorny i think you can have people in the same job but if you want a performance-based culture right some people are going to be better performers than others so then you know i think the question of equity and fairness is really tough i think ultimately what you have to do is have it be a conversation yeah. that people are engaged in so that there's at least transparency in the rationale. Right, right, right. You know, if you can't have transparency into what it actually is, that's probably fair because there are issues of privacy. There are issues of, you know, what's appropriate. But so that there's at least a clarity of understanding of how does this work? Right. How does this get decided? Yeah. You know, how am I valued? Right, right. Um, and all of those systems, performance management, talent review, all of these things were established in an old schema, an old framework. And so we're moving into a new paradigm and <laughs> it's, it's a wild ride. And I feel like that's the, that's the opportunity, right? Especially thinking about the word equity is to really help people understand how and why, and then really making sure that we are looking at things like our criteria and our rubrics and we're making sure that we're actively and consistently applying things like an equity lens to them in a way that doesn't make it just HR's role or at the discretion of one particular manager only and then different managers approach the way that they apply criteria differently and therefore inequity exists in an organization because managers have their own biases and they're applying them maybe to this in the same way to their own teams, but across the organization, people are talking to each other. And those sorts of things can really get out of control. And I think that's part of what has led so many people to feel like there's inequity exists or like they're not being treated fairly. And a lot of times it has to do with how one part of the organization is applying 
a practice differently than another part of the organization without any malintent, oftentimes using the exact same rubrics, but with our own kind of human interactions coupled with those, they play out quite differently. So it's going to be really interesting to think about how it is, especially now, as we create potentially new systems and models, we solve for that, right? We solve for the human bias. Well, and exactly, it's how conscious are we going to be at this stage? You know, how conscious are leaders going to be in creating the next, what is next? Right. Um, and I think that that's, that's the opportunity. Right. Yes, we're in a struggle. Yes, this is crazy time, <laughs> but there is tremendous opportunity. Um, I bet at the very beginning of COVID, I brought together a group of graduates of a leadership program and had them brainstorm what's the future of work look like. And they got a lot out of it just being in that conversation. And it was really interesting. And I think the hard part is keeping that going right. and making sure that we don't drop the ball. You know, in that conversation, a lot came up around, well, if we're all working virtually, then we have access to talent that's everywhere. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that could totally increase and change right, right. what the workforce looks like in very positive ways. Yes. But it also means that there may be some complications, right? Because the, the, the more people are different, the more we have to figure out how to communicate effectively across those cultural yep. differences. Yes. That's what we want, but it takes a lot more effort and it takes yep. a lot more sophisticated skill sets, right? And attention to the how on yes. a regular basis. And so it, it will get us to the result that we seek, but we have to be willing to kind of make the intensive investment and also have the skill, the associated sophisticated, I think, skill sets. For sure. Yeah. It's pretty exciting all that's in front of us right now. Okay, folks, we need to take a moment and get to our sponsors. So how about this? After our break, we'll come back and we'll continue our conversation. Holly, specifically with you, where we'll talk more about what are some of the opportunities and some of the best practices that people in HR and organizational development and talent and equity, diversity, and inclusion can and should be pursuing in our organizations going forward. And Jayla, thank you so much for your words of wisdom. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for letting me join you. Okay, off to our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Culture Road, a live and on-demand digital learning solution powered by Dieta Jones and Associates. Culture Road is an easy-to-use subscription, delivering fresh content monthly and access to experts to help professionals at all levels thrive in the contemporary workplace. Stay up to date with best practices on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and acquire the necessary skills and tools to effectively lead, manage, and influence others. Get connected with our community of practice to further your professional development at cultureroad.com. So Holly, I want to pick up on the conversation that you and Jayla were having um, after the camera stopped that was really about some of the reasons why, especially people that she's been talking to, people who are kind of at earlier stages of their career, who are applying for or possessing entry-level positions are leaving. And what she described, what Jayla described is that, you know, people are making assumptions about who's getting paid what and why. And there's this, as she described it, kind of a lack of trust that exists in the organization, particularly at that part of the organization, or particularly, again, using Jayla's words, for people who are from marginal, marginalized identities. Can you, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Like, what's the solve there? What, how do we address that? 
I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I think it's absolutely true when there's a lack of trust and you couple that with a lack of information, people fill that space with ideas of, you know, what's the word? Conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. You know, or it, they're out to get me yeah, or yeah. they're going to screw me over with the, I'm not going to get a fair offer. And it's sort of, I think it takes on much more intensity Yeah. when there isn't enough communication, there isn't enough openness. Right. And I think that's a big piece yeah. is, is starting to be more open and explicit about this is how we do it. This is why it's done this way. Um, and here we go. Now you can't tell everybody everything because there's privacy and there's employee rights and there's a very, there are laws, right? <laughs> you know, there are things that really cannot be disclosed, but I think that the more you can communicate internally, the better. It's interesting. I, I agree. That's been my experience is that in the absence of, um, really, really clear, proactive language and communication, people assume nefarious intent. Yes. And it's the doggondest thing, right? Yes. But it's just like that the yeah. assumption always goes to the lowest common denominator yeah. and it, they're out to get me or I'm not being traded fairly. So <clears throat> it's interesting to think about from your point of view, like how is it that we can proactively communicate? Like one of the things that I love to talk about is angry aspiration, right? And so instead of waiting for people to feel like they are not being treated fairly or for people to call out their employers or for people to boycott or for people to be part of the great resignation. How is it that companies like great companies yeah. can actually be saying, we're going to proactively put together communication and messaging and strategy that gets in front of some of these things that we really want to make sure are understood by our employees, understood by the communities we serve that are strategic, embedded, that are aspirational. What do you yeah. see as far as like really great practices out there? I think um, employee resource groups are a really interesting place to go. And I think that they can be fabulous. They can also be terrible, mm. right? I think really good employee resource groups are work in concert with an organization yeah. because in some ways you think about culture Right. and dominant culture and sort of there's formal communication that happens in organizations and there's informal. And the more that companies can know and understand what the informal conversations are and line that up so that you don't have such a gap. And I think employee resource groups that are well run, well supported, well understood can really help do that to help kind of bring closer into alignment what people are talking about, what they're concerned about, and be responsive to that. Even more than be responsive, be in front of it and be aligned. I think where employee resource groups don't do well is when they become kind of that place where people vent. Yeah. And then that's problematic. So I think a lot of it is trying to, and it goes back to what you we're saying before about we've got to expand people's capacity and competence to listen to each other really fully yeah. and understand, you know, if something is being discussed over here, it's not a threat. It's not a, it's just something to know. And let's kind of get to know who we are as organizations in a more full way. So one of the number one questions that I have ever heard, I continue to hear every day related to equity, diversity, and inclusion is, I get it, I care, how do I dot, dot, dot. 
the real practical, like tell me how. So I'm going to ask you the same hot seat question related to really um, having the kind of relationship that, you, relationship that you just described with employee resource groups. Like how do we actually align the messaging? How do we create employee resource groups or structure them so that they're optimally aligned with the organization and the organization feels like there's a really close relationship rather than one that is potentially either even splintered, either splintered or working against each other. Yeah. I don't know that anyone's completely cracked the code, but I suspect that it has something to do with making sure that they, that employee resource groups are not set up to like off to the side. I think it needs to be very embedded into the business. And I think that I guess maybe you could ultimately say that the ultimate goal would be to not need them. Possibly. There's a lot of philosophical schools of thought on that. I think, I don't know the answer. Interesting. I I, I don't 100% know the answer. And I think a lot of it depends on the culture of the organization. And I think whatever organization you're in, that's going to look different based on who's leading, how they lead. What's modeled from the top is incredibly important. Yeah. Um, and so that inclusion, that, that willingness to model that behavior is so important. I, I, you know, I, the model that comes to my mind, it comes to my mind all the time because it's so simple, but I think it's really helpful is strategy, structure, culture, and how oftentimes we do so much work at the cultural level and we put employee resource groups in this employee, in this cultural bucket. And we assume that that is the right place for them to be. And that's the major or only area of um, kind of investment that they make in the organization when actually employee resource groups, I believe, can and should be operating at all three of those levels, that they are absolutely a part of the structure, that they can and should be positioned and leveraged to help drive business strategies, right? And also nurture organizational culture. But what that also means is at the structural level, there needs to be direct relationships with people who are managers or directors and also executives to make sure that there are layers of formal and informal connectivity that exists and that people in business and functional leadership roles have just as much responsibility for ensuring the success and the alignment of the work of employee resource groups as HR has traditionally. Right. And that they're not just kind of grassroots, self-led, volunteer, social groups, but instead really, really robustly connected to the work of the organization in ways that allow people to see them as advancement opportunities, opportunities for recognition and reward, opportunities for um, cultivating new leadership voices and examples. But I I think employee resource groups is one great example of how it is that really wonderful organizations right now are also drawing people back into the workplace, right? Or encouraging people to, you know, be employed by them. I heard a conversation or a commercial the other day by Marriott that I thought was so brilliantly done because they were like, if you want a place that is going to fill your bucket and allow you to just have kind of the work-life balance that you want and feel like you're financially rewarded and feel like you're able to be a continuous learner. And it had some things to do with productivity and performance, but a lot to do with recognizing the rest of our identities. And I feel like those are the kind of messages and also um, companies that really get 
what it is that people are going to need if they're going to be drawn back into traditional corporate relationships. I think that's right. And I think it has to be authentic. I think it has to be, you have to really mean it. You performative exactly. is not going to work. No. And it's actually going to breed more of that distrust. Yes. You know, it's kind of like, oh yes, we have employee resource groups. You can right. go plan parties. No. We have employee resource groups who consult to us on our strategy. Exactly. That's because that's what people want. Yep. Um, so it's, and I agree, it needs to be DEI, EDI, it should not be the realm of HR. It's as if nobody else is caring about humans. We're all humans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and humans are what's actually driving our work. Yeah. So there's a disconnect there. It's interesting because HR, you know, human resources practitioners, especially over the, forever, right? It's always been like a heavy lift. But over the last couple of years, I can just imagine how complicated it is to be an HR practitioner and also to think about all of the expectations for making sure that people have and are developing more and more sophisticated skill sets related to hybrid work environments, thinking about different um and more sophisticated ways of managing, kind of, emo of, of demonstrating emotional intelligence, let alone cultural competence and global leadership. Yeah. I can only imagine how difficult it is to be a human resources practitioner right now. There are so many things that are changing with COVID, with hybrid and virtual um, environments, with you know distributed workforces all over the globe, with all of the work related to equity and trying to figure out what that means at all the systemic levels. At the same time, there's also a pretty significant shift as far as understanding that the work that has been primarily or solely the burden of HR for all these years must be distributed now. It has to be redistributed to be owned by and led by, in really fulsome ways, people who are managers and executives across the organization. What I would love from you is to tell us a little bit more about what do you think the new work is of managers and of leaders, regardless of what role they play, business unit leaders and functional leaders in organizations. What do you think are some of the things that they're gonna to need to be really proficient on now and going forward? And then what are some of the ways in which they can and should be investing in that proficiency? Yeah, it's been fascinating to observe and be part of for sure. And I think that there's been this, I mean, you can look at COVID and racial justice and all of that happening at once. And it's very similar in that the work required to respond effectively is hard. Yeah. And by nature, people don't want to do hard work, you know, and it, it, I think it did get dumped on HR in many organizations. And to the point of being kind of humorous, I had an HR person come to me and say, what am I, a tax attorney now? Because, <laughs> you know, people with hybrid work, they would move out of state. Oh, right, right. And then, you know, who gets the call about, well, why am I still paying tax? So it, it creeps into every area you could possibly imagine. Right. I think with, um, with EDI, it's, we still have a situation where the dominant culture is primarily white and male. And that, population has not had to confront this to the extent that they have had to recently. And I think I have a theory about in leadership, we talk a lot about positional power versus personal power. And I think there's something in there to explore with white male straight leaders. And 
I think positional power and personal power might get confused yeah. at times. And this is not an accusation. This is, it's really just, it's an observation. And I think it plays out along different dimensions, right? I think you can, I'm bringing up race and gender, but there's, there's something to be said for when people achieve leadership roles, they either become over-identified with the power of the role or they forget that they have to be more careful of what they say and do. So I think that that's, that's one piece which links to the greater consciousness we talked about. I think there's, there's something to be said for we're in an era now that's calling on us all to be more conscious. Yeah. Um, I think, and so that's sort of at an individual introspective level. I think within organizations, I would, I would say looking at how do you structure and organize teams? I think team effectiveness is going to be the next thing yeah. that there's already go, like coaching is happening and we've got all kinds of stuff. I think team effectiveness because teams are looking different with more people consulting with, you know, you're assembling, it's, it's not the same kind of command and control team. It's distributed, it's matrixed. It's so, and how do you account for different dynamics right. and, and different perspectives in a team? in the team functioning. So I think those are two things that really stand out to me. I love that. And I, and I, it, it's interesting because even thinking about team, people used to be able to organize, organize, in organizations, we used to be able to assemble a team and assume that that team would stay together for a period of time. And now people are moving more fluidly in and out of roles where we assemble teams based on skill set. And sometimes people are contractors or consultants or functional specialists or SMEs who are coming in and we have very different ways that teams are being composed and run. And we also need to, need to be able to very quickly create norms that will allow us to then perform, right? And have some shared agreements that very, very quickly allow us to still get things accomplished. And regardless of how much we aspire to have diversity in teams, it's still more difficult to work across diverse attributes and cultural identities and so we need to be able to have really sophisticated intercultural skills present as well as all of the other business kinds of and communication skills necessary. I love it. We have our work cut out for us. We definitely have a lot in front of us. So if you were going to leave us with any kind of wisdom or reaction or ideas of hopefulness as we think about kind of the next generation of what we can expect from our workforce or one of the potential benefits of this great resignation that we're experiencing right now? What would it be as we wind down this episode? Um, I mean, I always am looking for the opportunity in things. I think we're at a very exciting place of transformation yeah. on a lot of different levels, societally and culturally. And, and there's opportunity always in that space. Um, just thinking about the teams thing, I, I had the honor of doing some work with uh, Richard Hackman, who was a researcher on teams. And he was, he passed away about, I don't know, five, six years ago. And before he, the edge of his research at that time was something called sand dune teams. Huh. So it's like, they're shifting yeah, yeah. always. Um, I think it's exciting to think about what's in that for all of us. What kind of learning, what kind of growth, um, who are we going to be? Yeah. 
Who are we going to be? Yeah. It's a great question. Holly, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, before we go, though, I want to make sure right. that all of our viewers have the opportunity to get in touch with you and check out some of your work. How would we do that? So my website is www.septeriaconsulting, S-E-P-T-A-R-I-A.com. Um, I will be launching a blog fairly soon too, hollybrittingham.com. So that's how to get me. Holly, thank you so much again. What a great conversation. I always, always, always love this space with you. Thank you. And for our viewers, thank you so much for tuning in. And we look forward to talking to you on the next Culture Road podcast. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the Culture Road podcast. We want to hear from you. Take a screenshot of this podcast and share it on social media to let us know that you're listening. You can find us on Twitter at Dieta M. Jones. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Have a question or comment? Drop a note under this episode or email us at podcast at cultureroad.com. You might hear your commentary on a future episode. Until next time.